Hey, this is Scriptlock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Nick Folkman. And I am Max Folkman. Today's guests are Hallie Gross and Graham Resnick. Hallie is a writer and actress. She's written on the TV shows Banshee, Westworld, and Emerald City, and is currently co-writing The Last of Us Part Two. Graham is a writer, director, and sound designer. He is a co-writer on Until Dawn, Until Dawn, Rush of Blood, Hidden Agenda, and is currently running and directing Rapid Eye. Hi. <laughs> Hello. So we'll start off with how you two both got into writing for games. So, Hallie, let's go with you first. How I got into writing for games? Yes. I So uh, I went to grad school for TV writing, and I started working as a TV writer, and i just gotten off of season one of Westworld, and I got an email in my inbox from my a- agent, from my screenwriting agent, saying, hey, Neil Druckmann wants to sit down with you to talk about a super top secret job. Would you ever have any interest in writing in games? And I said, and I was like, I'd gotten the email and like my uh, my PS3 controller was in my hand because I was deep down a Skyrim hole. And I was like, I think it wrote in all caps, just absolutely, period. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and that was it. It's not, it's not a very dramatic, that was it. Now I'm just, now I'm here. So we're, you were playing games before you got into the industry. Yeah, yeah. I'm an only child, so um, uh, I started playing pretty young, and uh, I got my first Game Gear when I was seven. And Your first Game Gear? You had more than one Game I, Gear? No, I had, that's true, that's right, that's true. I got my first ever system when I was seven, which was a Game Gear. Um, What's the best Game Gear game? Ren and Stimpy in the search for the, what is it, the Yak? The Frozen Yak? The... I don't remember, but I remember it. Oh man! <laughs> I only know the Sonic game for the Game Gear. I don't. I never had a Game Gear. Gems was really good. Echo. Oh man, the Lion King game where you had to jump on the heads of giraffes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That game was good. In general. That game was amazing. Um, and then I sort of stopped playing. I played sort of up until college, and then I stopped for a while while I was doing grad school and hustling. And then right around Westworld, I think for fairly obvious reasons, I started to get back into it. But when I got the email about Neil, I, I was, I mean, deep in a Skyrim hole. Like, like 12 hours a day Skyrim hole. So when you got into Westworld, mm-hmm. when you were playing more games, were you thinking about maybe writing for games eventually? Um, I thought about it in grad school, actually. Uh, one of my professors was, I think, tangentially involved in games, and it was definitely something I was asking about. Um, but I really wanted to write, like, television and graphic violence in television. Uh, so I didn't really fonder, follow that road. But yeah, it's always been something that I, that I had in the back of my mind. And when I was working on Westworld, uh, we, I keep hitting this table and it makes a really rude sound. Uh, we put together a VR experience. And so HBO has a VR department, and they came in and they showed us the Vive and the Oculus and all that stuff and all these amazing games. And I was so taken aback by what I saw that I, like, stormed into Jonah Nolan's office very politely and said, can I please be a part of putting together that experience? And he was like, I mean, okay. (laughs) Um, So I had a little bit of experience in terms of, of that, but it was nominal compared to being thrown into The Last of Us. Okay. And you went to college for TV writing. What was your writing background before then? Before? College. Oh, uh, well, I was a, so I was a child actor. I played prostitutes and drug addicts. 
and <laughs> mostly, uh, and victims of various forms of abuse, and uh, did all the law and orders and stuff. But I wrote, you know, poetry and fiction stuff. I took all those classes. Um, but when I was in college, while I was working professionally, I also decided maybe I wanted to get into entertainment business or something, and I took some TV writing classes on the fly and just fell in love with it, and I uh, changed majors while I was an undergrad to this, so I was at NYU, I stayed at NYU, but I flipped to this hippie school called Gallatin, where you can make up your own major. Still part of NYU. Still part of NYU, that's true. Uh, Were you, you in Tisch before that? No, I, yes, I was in Tisch for acting. And then I went to Gallatin, and I made up my own major, which was comedy writing and the history of comedy. And then, <laughs> and then, um, the writer strike happened when I graduated, and I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to get any sort of assistant job this way, so I'll just try to go to grad school. And I applied for grad school and with this idea that I was going to try and be Tina Fey, and halfway through I decided to instead switch and do uh, graphic, graphic violence, <laughs> which is, I think, I'm much better at. <laughs> you missed your chance to major in graphic violence at Galton because they would have let you. I know they would have. You <laughs> That's know the great they would have. I could have like done Krav Maga as my thesis. <laughs> would have been great. <laughs> exactly. Graphic violence and the history of graphic violence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it would have been a much older story. Think. <laughs> uh, which conservatory at uh, at Tisch? I was in. Okay, deep cuts. Now here we go. The one where you also produce stuff and make theater. Oh, so oh. not the one where you're like on the subway yelling shame, shame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, we were not the shame, and we weren't the naked ones either. Yes, yeah. No, no, we weren't those. We were the like hardworking people who tend to become directors and producers. Like Atlantic Theater Company? Or? No, uh, hold, it'll come to me at the end. Like, I'll be driving <laughs> home and I'll remember it. I kind of want to Google it now, but I don't want to. We'll put it in the show notes if she actually text us back when she goes home tonight. Oh my god, yeah. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed, NYU. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Graham, how did you get into writing for video games? Um, Playwrights Horizons! Ah, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Interesting, I don't know that one. Playwrights Horizons. Wait. No, I could be wrong. That is a theater company <laughs> in New York. No, I, I don't know all of them. I just know a few. I know like I'm Stella Googling. Adler let's and, just, you know. let's, I'm I'll censor that after the fact. I'll bleep it. Oh, it's also been, it's been a long time. Oh, man, guys, <laughs> this is humiliating. This is this not, is, I'm not starting off on a good foot. It's important. <laughs> oh, dear Christ. Uh, I, I was also at NYU, and don't worry, I've forgotten all of my time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember riding the elevator and seeing the wooden mirror. Was the wooden mirror still there when you were there? When, like one of the elevator doors would open, and there was a mirror made of little panels of wood, and whenever anyone, anyone walked by it, it would go like. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The best thing ever. That was awesome. Yeah. That like installation yeah. piece, yeah. And it was like for like the new media, not even Gallatin, but like. No, like yeah, new media. It was, like, very specific, and like no one knew any of those people who did that, but they're like all the people who like do all the, like invent Oculus kind of stuff, like. Yeah, the wizards. The wizards, pretty much. Yeah. Tech wizards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had their secret floor. At I think it was like the fourth floor or something. Yeah, because yeah. uh, dramatic writing was on the fifth floor. Yeah. So if I saw it, it was below. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Graham, how'd you get into writing for games? Uh, well, um, I grew up playing games uh, just as a, a, a child in the 80s, you know, growing up with, with all the, the iterations of the consoles. And um, What was I, your favorite Game Gear game? I didn't have a Game Gear. Um, I, I, the only con out. Yeah, I know, really. Uh, a friend of mine had a Lynx. So I played the one game he had on his list. Oh, boy. Um, but I, I never had a console until I saved up to buy a Super Nintendo on my own uh, from, like, mowing lawns or something or shoveling 
sidewalks, but I can only then afford like two games for it. My parents were not into the idea of me having a console, but they had a computer because my dad, for his work or whatever, had a, like a 286 when I was a kid. Yeah. And so I played a lot of Sierra games, like all Sierra games, like all the adventure games, King's Quest, Police Quest, all that stuff. Um, so that like kind of set me down the path to for more narrative game experiences than it, like arcade game experiences. So I just kind of always had that in my head as like a thing that I enjoyed. Uh, but I went to NYU for, for filmmaking. Um, and at NYU, uh, I guess it wasn't through NYU, but through a friend of mine, um, Ty West, who I grew up with in Delaware, um, he had a teacher, Kelly Reichart, at uh, SVA. He was at SVA. I was at NYU. Um, and Kelly Reichart uh, was a great filmmaker, uh, worked a lot with Larry Fessenden, who was another great filmmaker. Ty interned for Larry. Uh, gave, uh, Larry gave Ty his first movie when we were, like, 21. Uh, so we shot this movie in Delaware for, like, a couple hundred thousand dollars. So we all ended up making movies with Larry for years, and I ended up kind of co-writing with him uh, on a couple projects. And he has done a bunch of movies that are uh, about Wendigo or sort of, you know, use the Wendigo mythology as part of his, his thing. Um, and so he was asked through some connections that I don't know to write on uh, what became Until Dawn um, and he didn't really know games at all he's never really played them um, he's a little bit older he's in his 50s and he was kind of always aware of them and appreciated what they were and really fascinated by the technology and the idea that you could tell stories in kind of interesting ways um, but he'd never really played them so he uh, was asked to do this and so he brought me in and as it turns out he had been kind of sitting on the uh, opportunity for a little while, and they had asked us to do one chapter, which he thought wasn't a big deal. It was like 20 pages. But it was 20 pages of prompts. So it was actually like a feature-length script. Oh, damn. Uh, so on a plane ride and a weekend, uh, I basically filled in all the dialogue, and then we sat together at like a kitchen table in this place in New York and like punched it all up, uh, which has been our process since then. Um, managed to get the job uh, and have been kind of working for Supermassive in, in and around games. Ever since, nice. Yay! So that's how that happens. So, what's your writing process like? You've only worked with Larry in video games, right? So in video, well, like, yeah, I guess I have a different writing process when it's a solo thing or something that I'm directing or something that I'm in film, something I'm writing for someone else. There's, you know, there's always different ways. For Supermassive specifically, and for Until Dawn, we get writing prompts. So we get like the developers have already built out pieces of the story. Uh, you know, a chapter or uh, even down to some scene work or some dialogue that they want incorporated. Um, often we'll consult on elements of the story and, you know, try to help them shape that before we get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, but a lot of times it'll be like, okay, this is what the section's going to be. We need these characters to do these 12 things because of all of the, uh, the branching. Uh, and then we'll sit and we'll have to get into the heads of the characters and figure out a way to make every one of those make sense, which can be you know, kind of uh, gymnastics uh, at times, uh, getting that to work. Uh, and then, you know, we'll, we'll each write sections separately because there's just so much of it. I mean, it's like thousands and thousands of pages. Yeah. Um, and he'll write a chapter, I'll write a chapter, and then we'll get together on Skype because he's in New York, uh, and we'll just share a screen and read each other's work. So, And he's a performer, he's an actor, and I am not at all. But it's good for us to see the, like, the different levels of, like, how the style can be read and how it can be interpreted by the actor and how it work together in a flow. And we punch it all up that way and... Uh, then we deliver it. About your writing process, like on your own, it's like if, it, if it, a general writing process. I 
generally cite the uh, the Woody Allen quote of like writing is ninety percent staring at the ceiling and being depressed, <laughs> and ten percent <laughs> sitting at a typewriter. Yeah, the ten percent is really easy uh, for me at this point, uh, just because of having done it for so long. The ninety percent is still just you know it'll be like two years of like I'm writing a script in my head or like just working on a, th- a concept or a feeling that I'm trying to find yeah and then once I find that feeling and start putting it to paper it's just very quick it just happens uh, especially if I know something's going to be produced because it's really easy to make decisions that are going to go into a production because you have limitations that you have to work with and you know exactly how it's going to go especially yeah. if you know who the actors are yeah but if you don't if it's spec I mean that can still go on forever you know it's 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 uh, harrowing. Yeah, it's harrowing. <laughs> it's a little bit of a curse. My wife will sometimes just see me sitting there and be like, uh, "Don't you have work to do?" And I'm like, "I'm I working. am working. <laughs> I am." <laughs> Does that get frustrating? Like for both of you dealing with like, it looks like you're not working, but you are working, and then people are, like have a way where they're they don't they just think presume. you're working. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, at Naughty Dog, I've built uh, a dog bed for myself, so we have our desks, <laughs> and I might like dev kit and my computer and my chair and then underneath my dev kit I have built I've brought in like a giant basically a dog bed and put a blanket and pillows over there and sometimes I just hide under there like a like a like bridge Costanza. gnome yeah <laughs> sure uh, and I'll just sort of be sitting there with like my notebook open in my lap but just kind of staring off and so I'm just these two feet sticking out from under my desk and it definitely is uh a weird sight for people, but I'm like, I, I gotta, I don't know, I just needed a dark space to think. That's this your is an open the floor plan. That's yeah, your yeah. 90%. That's, yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, you mentioned that, like, uh, before that you had kind of a, a dark period where you weren't playing a lot of games. Yeah. I, I think about that as my dark period, uh, as, you know, when I didn't play games kind of after college, I was like, I need to be a filmmaker, I need to, if I just play games all the time, I'm never gonna... I'm be distracted. Yeah, I'm never gonna get anywhere. Because I know I would, I would just like in two thousand three, I would have just like started smoking pot and like moved to Austin, <laughs> anything, done anything. Uh-huh. Uh, so I put games aside for a while, and I have like a gap in my knowledge of games for like six, yeah, seven me too. Years. It's weird because there was a lot happening. You know? Yeah, it's like post Orange Box. Yeah. Up until like mid PS three, I don't know what happened. I yeah, I think mine actually picked back up around Orange Box. Because it was like 2002, 2003. Oh, good. Like, together we're one. Yeah, we have not <laughs> can answer any questions. There we go. <laughs> but, it, but now, uh, once I started getting the, uh, the like, gigs in the game industry, now it's like, cool, this is research. Yes. I can just yeah. play a game. Doesn't that feel amazing? Feel totally. It's, I still feel bad doing it. <laughs> It's you know it, well it's oh. hard it's it's not like watching a bunch of movies where you can spend two hours playing movies sometimes you can get into a Skyrim hole and spend oh, yeah. twelve hours a day and it's you still don't get a full sense of how the thing was put together yeah or like no you actually want to learn from it you know? but you can like at least get some sense of like how they're handling mechanics or totally. like mm-hmm. and that's very like that is that is actually very relevant in, yeah. in meetings that you have so it doesn't like. There's a certain point when you're like 20 hours into a game where you're like, I could definitely put this down, and I've yeah. really walked away with enough information to sound like I've yeah for meetings or whatever. But you know, I, you but know, then you're in it. You can't yeah. stop there. Yeah. Well, I wonder how many like there's got to be some knowledge of like the percentage of people who actually finish longer form narrative games. Oh, or games that people they know people most people don't finish most games. Know, right? No, yeah. it's I think it's it's really low. It's yeah. like you can check like PlayStation trophies and see what. It, for the achievements, like, like you've beaten the game or not. Yeah, yeah. It's not a lot. 
that's so funny because not yeah, Naughty Dog games are ones that like are are, are always finishes for me. Like those are ones that I'm always going to get to the end of. Yeah. So involved in the narrative, but like something like a Skyrim or Grand Theft Auto, like I'm not going to finish it. You know. I did finish the last Grand Theft Auto. Because my wife was away. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, anytime my husband's away, I'm like, ooh, baby. <laughs> Here we go. So does knowing that a lot of people don't finish games, does that affect your writing? No, 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 absolutely not. Like, at the end of the day, you're, you're writing a full narrative, and it's about the full experience. So if they don't finish it, that's a bummer, and... I'd like to think that if we're doing the best version of our jobs, we can get them to stay, maybe not to the end if they were never going to finish, but stay a little longer. Um, but I don't think you could ever ever write that way. I think you have to be aiming for the ending. I know companies totally do, though. like Front load? Yeah. And we'll I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't talk more about it. I'm just going to say that it happens. Uh, well, you know, an interesting thing that's happening, um, and I don't know if this has any direct correlation, I, I would have to ask the people at Supermassive, but Until Dawn is like 8 to 12 hours or something, and it's really hard to just actually play all in one sitting, but it is a fun game to play with a bunch of people. Mm. Any narrative game like that is fun to play with a bunch of people. So the most recent one we did, and I think other ones that are in the works, are like two to three hour experiences. They're much shorter. And they're like a movie. You know, it's like a two-hour thing. You sit down, you know it's going to feel like a movie. As As a viewer or a player of the game, it's paced similarly enough that you... You always kind of know where you are in the narrative, which is a nice thing, I think, when you're, as a as a player, like, to know, like, okay, there's not going to be 10 hours left of this. Like, yeah. And that's something that even in the best narrative games, I will sometimes be like, I think I'm near the end. Okay, cool. I'm just going to push through. And then it's like five in the morning. And I'm like, I, I, nowhere near the end, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I feel the same way. I think that there's definitely... Um a warm spot in my heart when I know I can finish something like with yeah. Inside or Gone Home where people are like mm-hmm. no 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 you can do it in like two or four hours you're like oh great this is just like the perfect amuse-bouche and mm-hmm. I can just I can see the entire experience I mean like as an, as narrative nerds like I think it's nice to sort of have the full experience and sort of say I didn't miss anything this is what it was yeah yeah no I, I'm I'm really intrigued just as a like a player of like by these games that are shorter form and like a movie and that you could sit down with like your friends or your significant other and just like have an evening where you play yeah. a game and you have the whole experience you can talk about it afterwards and it's just like like seeing a movie or watching a TV show yeah and I guess if, if you're not interested like if you don't need people coming back for that multiplayer experience or whatever like maybe there isn't really a draw I don't know but maybe there isn't a drawback for people to make them because ultimately you're it's a it's that just that base price anyway I keep hitting the table it's fine <laughs> I'll be able to take most of it out, I think. Oh, good. Sorry. <laughs> What's your writing process, Holly? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on on, on for, for what. I don't know if you can tell me your writing process on Last of Us, but, like, in general. I think I can. I, uh, Neil and I spent the better part of last year outlining it and following a very cinematic structure in terms of, like, there's, there are three acts or five, depending on what book you like to read, and um, very clear uh, turns where there should be, and a lot of characters that we're weaving through. And so now the process is about, uh, now that the outline's broken and we've broken them down into levels as, as well, it's about taking those scenes or those levels, making sure we're both on the same page about what those are, then I'll go and I'll write a first draft, he'll read it, he'll give me notes, I'll go write a second draft based on those notes, then around there, he'll usually take it, he'll do a, his pass on it, then I'll take it back, and then I'll do a pass on his pass, and then we'll usually just sit down in front of the computer 
and bicker over lines like an old married couple. Um, and, you know, I'll explain why I think that it should be this, or he'll explain why he think it should, he'll, you know, why he thinks it should be that, and we'll just bicker and bicker and bicker and bicker and bicker until we either give up or agree. It sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With Larry and I, there's a lot of like, well, I don't know if the phrase is exactly that. We look it up on Google, and then we both, and then it's like we're comparing Google search results for like the exact wording of a phrase. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's I fun. I, like, love that at the same time. No, it's super yeah. fun, and it's interesting to just, like, I think it makes you a better writer because you have to validate. It teaches mm. you that, like, I, I like to write tight, so I really believe that every sentence needs to matter, otherwise don't put it in because you're wasting the viewer's time. So it's interesting to have to validate every choice you're making and have a good argument for it. Um, but I think it's also good practice in not being precious. Mm -hmm. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about that I do with Neil also happens in most writers' rooms as well, where you really can't be precious. You can say, here's my best idea, but, you know, maybe it's not going to get chosen. Likelihood isn't, it's not going to get chosen. And you have to be okay with saying, okay, that didn't work. Let me come up with something new. And just, it's more about um, volume than about uh, clinging to something. Yeah, that's, in, in my experience with, with working with Larry, we, our first passes we call garbage passes. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're literally just like, oh my God, there's hundreds of pages we have to get through, and yeah. we just put down whatever. And yeah. Like, it's a complete exercise in not being precious. And as a screenwriter, I used to be very, very precious and look over the first page a hundred sure. times. And, and you kind of have to go through that, but also you have to have that element of like. Kill your babies. Yeah, just can't care about this. And then when we do our punch ups, we like are we're pretty brutal, and it's figuring out every reading of this line does it work? You know, mm -hmm. does it. In the, and then the modular thing. You know, it's interesting what you said about every line having to be meaningful and not wasting the viewer's time. When you start getting very modular, and I don't know if this is your experience with The Last of Us, at least in, in the games that we've been working on, there's a lot of stuff where we really don't know. Um, not like players getting to the end, but we just don't know, like, what is the percentage of people who are going to see this specific eventuality? Yeah, 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 sure. And do we have to really spend an hour getting these two lines right? Or is this only if the player fucks up everything and then they need to be just steered back? And it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's, the, that's an interesting part of games that you don't get in television is because you have to address edge cases, you have to address, uh, like, uh, player trajectory. You kind of... And there is all that in-game time where... Like, maybe they'll run through it fast, so you, you know, you have to write tight dialogue, but maybe they linger and, like, open every drawer and think about stuff, and you kind of want to have stuff for that as well. Yeah. But it can't be integral to the plot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that's been a really interesting uh, learning curve for me, sort of saying, well, what would be supplementary but not necessary? Mm -hmm. So you, you call them edge cases. That's cool. What, what is, is there a different? No, I, like, I literally, I sit in a bedroom in my house I never leave. I'm not, I don't work in an office, so I'm, like, fascinated by people who actually really, truly work in the industry and, like, have terminology for all the weird things that Larry and I call, like, garbage packs. <laughs> we just, like, invented, yeah. a, like, a Nell language of, like, we're out in the woods. Nell language. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, Jody Foster oh, yeah. references up front. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think every studio has their own terminology for, like, every kind of possibility of what happens in games. Like yeah. It's not unique to the entire industry. I'm sure, yeah, because it gets, you go down these rabbit holes of very proprietary, like, yeah, Supermassive has their, like, very proprietary software that we use to track everything, and I have to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to stop you. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, Telltale has their own system, too, for what they use with their narrative choices. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting to see how that kind of software is built 
for the needs of the exact people who have the exact shorthand who are working on that specific kind of game, that specific kind of thing. Like, I don't know if that software would make any sense to use on The Last of Us or whatever you guys use to track what you do would make any sense here because it's so specifically catered to... What you're making. Exactly what they're mm. making, yeah. But it helps. Yeah. Um, but then it's, like, hard to apply those things to, you know. Even if it didn't apply, though, I wish students were more open with what they were using and, like, talk to each other more because yeah. it would save so much, like, work. Yeah, it's, it's constantly reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's, that's something that's true of all... This is a broader thing, but that's true of almost all interactive narrative at this point because it is kind of the Wild West, even with VR. There is no standard template for any type of narrative in interactive. Like, the interactive element has to be, like, integrally married to what the narrative is you're trying to tell and vice versa. You can't just be like, oh, let's take uh, this other story and pop it into the Until Dawn template yeah. and expect it to work. Or, you know you know, other similar cases like that. It's, it's, I've had certain situations over the past year where I've been asked to pitch for interactive live action. Mm. And a lot of times I'll go into the, the, I'll probably shoot myself in the foot by writing a big email that's like, well, I could pitch you a concept, but I'd rather pitch you a way of interacting and hear some ideas that might fit to that. And then I think that scares people off a little bit because they don't want to think about actually yeah. how to be interacting. They just were like, what's a cool story that like I can I can push and pull and touch? Yeah, I think there's a real... Um, people are scared of what they don't know, right? And yeah. people are very comfortable with linear narrative, and especially in Hollywood, that's something we all understand. But when you're in this VR space, or when you're maybe in this... I, I know much less about uh, the interactive space, but like, you can't do that, because then it's like, well, why don't I just do a, f- a film or a television show, because there's an established protocol for that. It needs to be specifically for this medium, otherwise why do it? Yeah, exactly. And I feel that way about even just regular linear narrative. It's like, if a screenplay is perfect on the page, why film it? Yeah. It's perfect screenplay. Screenplays have to leave a little bit to to come alive in the actual filming and editing and sound design and music. Similarly with interactive narrative, if it could just work as a linear thing, why make it interactive? You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's no point. You're not going to learn anything new from the interactivity. This might be an interesting segue into Mosaic. I was just going to say. <laughs> oh, Mosaic. Um, um, and how we are all failures. <laughs> <laughs> for people who don't know, Soderbergh put out... Steven uh, Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh put out a branching narrative experimental show with HBO. It's an app called Mosaic. where we, we, I was going to try to have everybody watch Mosaic before we came on here, but... I did not realize, no one realized that it was actually like... (laughs) Seven and a half hours of content. So we watched a little bit of it, each of us. So we'll talk a little bit about it. We're not going to spoil it because we haven't seen all of it. But I I mean, I I didn't also realize uh, that each chunk is pretty long. And I think they get shorter as they go, is that you guys were saying? That's what it looked like, yeah. Yeah. The first chunk is like a half an hour, and at least the two next chunks are like around a half an hour. Mm -hmm. And I only saw one little piece of additional content in that. So it's, like for me, it's yet to be seen how... Mm-hmm. much of an interactive experience it truly is. But even I, I was completely invested in the story after 45 minutes or so. I just And Soderbergh's like making it clear in interviews that he's not, it's not, you're not choosing another adventure. It's like you're just watching different perspectives on things. Right. Yeah. The story's always going always to happen no matter what, like yeah. what the story was set to be. You're not changing the ending or anything. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, what's interesting is that he's saying that you're seeing different perspectives on things, but it's not an either or. You have the ability to like you can see watch all of it. Mm-hmm. So it is really just about your initial experience. Yeah, like what your first impressions are 
and what order you're seeing things rather than like, if you look at this, you're not going to see this version, and so you get a totally different reading. But I, yeah, I haven't gotten further, so. What did you think, Hallie, when you are watching? Oh, I mean, uh, obviously I thought it was beautifully shot. Uh, um, I was really excited by the concept, by this idea of um, this is a perfect way to talk about different perspectives and to talk about with linear narrative, you are only ever really with your protagonist's POV unless the writer's doing something a little creative. And I think this is a really exciting way to hop around to different perspectives and make a commentary on how well we really know people and how much we can really ever take away from a situation. And I think that's super playful. I'm, I'm really curious how he's... So I hear it's coming out January 12th on HBO as like a six-hour... Miniseries, linear, yeah. linear miniseries yeah. that they're going to re-edit. I'm really curious to see how they intercut the individual stories that we've seen and if that makes a difference in terms of how invested you are in each of the characters. I know they also, they, apparently they shot more than is in the interactive thing and that will feed into the oh. linear one as well. So it could be its own completely unique experience. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, I, he's made a few interesting comments about, like you guys sent out the yeah. sent me the quote did you see this quote that he had do you guys have it yeah yeah. Um, you should read that wanna... someone asked Soderbergh how is this not a video game and he went one of the reasons I don't know why he said this because it's not really answering the question but he said one of the reasons why I think virtual reality as a narrative format is never going to go beyond the short form immersion space is because of the bedrock of visual storytelling is the reverse angle mm-hmm. if you can't look into the eyes of the protagonist you cannot hold people's attention for more than 15 minutes I mean, I, I love Soderbergh, and I've, he's been a huge inspiration in a million different ways, but I think he's totally wrong about yeah. that. I, I think it, he's wrong just in the context. I think it's really important to look into the eyes of the protagonist, but that's not to always say that you, the viewer, are the protagonist. Yeah. Because a, a lot of great storytelling is watching someone else, someone else's story. And even, I mean, what's a great example? Gone Home. Gone yeah. Home is an incredible narrative. There's no one in it. I mean, you're literally just piecing together a story, and you are a catalyst for that. You're like a cipher for just you know sure. understanding that story. First story as well, which story, I, this really invoked for me. Yeah. Um, so I, I, he's it's kind of like the Ebert games being art thing. It's like he's got a kind of narrow view of what games are and can be, and in that narrow view, he's right. But I think that is this a video game? A mosaic. Yeah. I have a personal opinion about what makes something a game versus an interactive experience and it's like a weird and the reason I had to make that line in my head was because of Rapid Eye the the interactive thing I just shot and because I didn't want to repeat stuff I was doing in the game world in the uh, the video game world or in the interactive space if you I mean literally if you can game it if you can strategize then it's a game but if you're just experiencing and responding and that's influencing in a more opaque way then it's an interactive experience. I feel like her story is right on the edge, but it's it's a interactive experience for me. It's not it's not a game. There's really nothing you can do other than see all of it. That's mm-hmm. the only thing. Everything you're putting together is happening purely in your head. There's no strategy other than like what search terms can I come up with. And so like it has a little like in the Venn diagram, it's got a little bit of game in it. But I think I mean I think Barlow is uh, one of the smartest people about this that I've ever met and he Sam Barlow Sam Barlow yeah uh, who did her story 
who is a, a creative director on Rapid Eye. So we've had oh, a wow. Lot. I really brought a reference. I didn't... Oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and he's, he's really smart about this stuff, and I don't know how much I'm allowed to say about other projects I've seen of his, but one thing he, he pushed me towards in Rapid Eye was this kind of opaqueness and allowing the viewer to respond and react to something in real time, but not know what the effect is going to be, but know that their emotional involvement and reaction was going to change it so that you couldn't, stra- you had to take, you took strategy out of it, basically. So then it's not a game. So then I feel like Mosaic's not a game, but it is an interactive experience. And does that difference matter? I think maybe just to the expectations of the, the viewer. You yeah. Know? But as a, a thing, objectively, it doesn't mean it's better or worse. I don't think. Would you agree or disagree? No, I would totally agree. I would say that it is, uh, it's not a game. And, and as you were describing her story, I was, as you were saying, I was like, yeah, man. Yeah, it's not a game. It is an interactive experience. Take back all those awards, Santa Marlowe. Oh, <laughs> but, but it's true. It's like all you can do is, is uh, experience it. But you can't make a decision. You can't win or lose. You mm-hmm. can just put it down or keep, keep going. Yeah, that idea of winning is important. If you yeah. take that away it frees up so many things for the viewer right. and the developers. Right. Um, but I do think there is an interesting opportunity with Mosaic and her story and all of those where by giving the viewer uh, or player, depending on how you want to categorize yeah. it, uh, a choice about what they experience, you're engaging them in a very interesting way where uh, I feel like you're empowering them and piquing their curiosity in a way that maybe traditional long form doesn't. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of opportunities in terms of engagement, especially, you know, as I, as people's attention spans, some people like to claim are getting shorter. I don't know if that's true, but it's definitely, I think, an interesting opportunity. Yeah, and uh, along with that, I think that um, one of the things that uh, Soderbergh said, I don't remember if it was in that quote or not, but he said, I'm not a gamer, you know, I don't game, which, you know, fair enough, he probably doesn't go to, you know, play Skyrim 12 hours a day. Yeah. And he's thinking it's about probably as a healthier for him. Probably healthier. <laughs> Doesn't have a sweet Call of Duty setup, you know, with his like fancy his mouse. Gaming rig. Yeah, um, special chair with the emotion sensors. Um, Do you have that? No, no. But I did see uh, what, what is the face from uh, Silicon Valley? Uh, um, Tom Middle, main, main actor Tom Middle. That she has a like a sweet gamer. Oh yeah, he's a big gamer. The uh, another like just artistic agenda of mine over the past couple of years is the obsession with the idea that narrative, interactive narrative was tried in the 80s CD-ROM interactive uh, 90s CD-ROM games. Didn't really work. I think partially the technology wasn't ready, but also people weren't ready. I don't mm-hmm. think that we had the... We weren't being trained uh, in the sort of lexicon of interactivity the way that all of us are now. When you set up an iPhone, it's almost a gamified experience. When you operate, you know, when you interact, interact with your car, her story is like trying to talk to Alexa. I mean, it's like the same kind of thing, and we're all kind of immersed in it now. So Steven Soderbergh is just wrong when he says he's not a gamer. He's like all the rest of us. He has that that lexicon at this point. He's not a Call of Duty gamer, but he is at the same stage we all are, which is like, yeah, this is the world we live in now. Yeah. Like We're interacting with AIs and computers all the time, and now narrative has the ability to play around with uh, are being primed for that, which is great. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Jinx. It's a good answer. Uh, Holly. Hallie. Oh, Holly. Shit. It's all right. It's all right. It's all it's right. Like Halle Berry. My, I know. I know. Everyone who loves me does it too. It's fine. <laughs> it's like Hal the c- computer. Exactly. 
and then E. Yeah, like the berry. Yeah. Or like Wally, but how E. There you go, Sally. <laughs> but it's Wally, so it's Holly. Oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> I call Whoa. it Wally. I'm not cutting this out. <laughs> <laughs> Hallie. Yeah. Did working on a Westworld and having to deal with stuff like narrative design, player agency, NPCs, etc., do a good job of preparing you for game writing? I think it, it, you know, when you're talking about Westworld, what we were building was a very open world experience, right, in the park. Um, whereas T2 is a very linear narrative, so I don't think that it helped me as much as it could have if I were, say, writing on Horizon or something like that. But definitely because I was allowed to contribute to the VR experience and had to think about player agency, that definitely gave me, like, 2% more of a leg up yeah. when I showed up at Naughty Dog. But I also was just like, guys, I have 2% of a leg up. I really need you guys to just hold my hand for a little while. And they've been super supportive and lovely. And now I know about fail states, so I feel pretty cool. Like, what was the biggest surprise for you when you started writing at Naughty Dog? Honestly, how sim... Uh, two, two things. One, how similar it was in terms of break... Uh, in comparison to, like, breaking a season of television. Because it is a, li a linear narrative, uh, and we're talking about hours and hours and hours of content, we broke it like, uh, like I would break a TV show. So, you know, we threw it up on the wall, we broke it down into chunks, we talked about... Uh, emotional arcs and turns and so for that for the first few months it felt very familiar and very comfortable and I was like making cards and putting them up with thumbtacks and feeling super in my own space and then we started to get to in-game and I was like oh oh my god the rules are so different <laughs> what do you people do um, I also think you know this is sort of a broader question of how games I think are different than television but um, and I can't speak to other studios, I can only speak to Naughty Dog, but I remember when Neil and I first got a pitch that we liked together, he was like, let's just bring in the designers and pitch it to them. And I was like, what are you talking about? No, it's not ready. What are you doing? And he was like, yeah, no, I mean, they'll give us notes, you know, we'll just hear how it goes. And I was like, oh my God. Because like in, in TV writing, it you very much like, finish what you intended to start. Like, you, ha you, you complete the script, and it's only when the script is completed and the studios and networks have given their approvals do the other departments get to see it and um, iterate on it. And they don't really get to iterate on it. They just sort of build what you've written. Whereas at Naughty Dog, it's a very collaborative experience where, you know, like, we can say to them you know, this is what this narrative beat needs to accomplish. And then designers will come in and say, well, I want to see if I can get this mechanic into this level. And maybe the art department will say, well, we found this really cool building. Can we do it here? And so that starts to affect the narrative because of, you know, it, it just naturally um, flushes it out. And Naughty Dog is filled with incredibly smart people who also think in narrative terms. And so a lot of, like, some of the best notes we've gotten have been from our editors, from, from character departments, from designers. Um, the, the story is very much built in a collaborative process in a way that TV and, and film isn't, in my experience. Yeah, I, my, my experience with Supermassive uh, is a little bit different since Larry and I are here and there out in the... Uh, in England, but they have a very similar experience internally, mm -hmm. uh, and they bring us in for pieces of that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very different than film. I mean, it's film is a a 
even in a writer's room in, in TV or film, and, and I don't know if this is your experience or not, um, and I haven't had a lot of TV writer's room experience, but it still all does kind of so come down to, uh, it still all does kind of come down to like one one guiding voice, ultimately, mm-hmm. um, who's just the, you know, the buck stops there, and like the showrunner or whoever else is going, no, this is the way we're going to do it. And they might take in input from everybody else, but it's like, that everything's feeding that that vision. Whereas with games, it's it's way more organic. It feels like one kind of like hive mind kind of piecing everything together ultimately. Um, I mean, in, yeah. in Until Dawn, there were a couple people at the top who, Will Biles and Pete Samuels, who were like those guys, but they really like, they listen to their, their team is more than I think that would happen in film. Because yeah, it's like the, the costume department doesn't come in and say like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this and can you change the script this way? Yeah. Generally, it doesn't happen that way. Like, and the showrunner's like, no, yeah. it wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> Do what's on the page. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we have a Neil uh, who sort of functions in that way in, in, a, in a showrunner capacity. But it's, yeah, it's incredibly collaborative and the good idea wins. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's very considerate that way. Um, in in hearing perspectives, which is great. Like I think the I think the game will only be better because of all of the varied experiences and minds working on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, it's uh, a film being a linear ex- film and television being linear experiences. It's easier to just put all your eggs into that one experience mm-hmm. basket. Forgot, almost forgot the basket, I and mean, that would. Be <laughs> um, but with games, because there's so many billions of perspectives on a narrative yeah. you do really need lots and lots of perspectives on it otherwise you'll go insane <laughs> yeah one person can't hold all of that in their head it it's massive yeah. it's massive maybe I don't know maybe with the four hour games I don't know with shorter games yeah it might be possible and, and even the, the two hour game that we did Hidden Agenda that just came out it's it's still super complicated I mean there are sequences where there's one bar scene where two of the characters are putting together clues, mm-hmm. and it's three minutes on screen, mm-hmm. but it was like 50 pages. Damn. And I have no idea if all of it works. I don't know. I've, mm-hmm. I haven't played every version of it or watched the dialogue from a version of it, but everything down to the performance still does kind of have to match up and make sense when it's modularly. Oh, fit sure. Back yeah. So, you know, we hope it works, and we hope that. You know, everybody, Fine. the main, the majority of people see the ones that do work. That's so, tricky. That must be really hard. It's, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where their special software comes into play because we can, we can look at all the versions of it. Um, but it, it's still just very time consuming to look at every single iteration yeah. and see, you know. But you start getting really, really, um, this is a tangent, but you start getting really uh, aware of like vocal patter repetition that kind of thing characters mm. saying each other's names all the time yeah. especially if you don't mean them to but if sometimes the compiler puts things together in a specific way because of the way that people played it um, they're going to start four sentences in a row with well I think and then you realize you have a problem yeah um, and that's something you have to be really cognizant of all the time yeah the saying names thing is really interesting because you realize in real life people almost never say each yeah, other's names no. But you have to when you have more than two characters because you have to sort of point the conversation, Mm -hmm. especially in games where like, you know, at least in a linear in like film or television, the the edit can tell you who you're talking to. But in games, you don't know where the player is looking. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) they're walking the other direction. They're not on a table somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You're like, cool. I'm glad you're interested in that. Cubby hole, but narrative's happening behind you. It has physics. It does have physics. It's amazing. Written so much cubby hole dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Idols. I have a question kind of related to this because 
You've only been on, how long have you been Last of Us? Uh, I started July of last year. Okay, so over a year. Yeah. And Until Dawn took a long time, going through different permutations. Well, you've been working on a game for a year or two years or however long, because games take a long time, like longer than movies usually end, longer than TV shows. And there's stuff early on that you did that you want to fix or change, but then you can't because of production reasons. Do you do stuff differently going forward? Do you understand the question? I think this is more of a you question. Do you mean within one game or within? One game. In my experience with these games, it's a weird question uh, to answer for me because we did Until Dawn twice. We wrote for PS3, and it was actually a lot like what you're describing where, you know, it was first person and characters were just kind of all around, and so they really did have to, like, kind of lob exposition out at each other all the time. In the second version of the game, uh, it was the first, one of the first PS4 games, um, at least er in early development, so we really took advantage of the, the facial capture, and we wrote to that. We wrote to, like, telling a story with acting rather than just lobbed exposition. So we didn't have to rely on, you know, names being thrown around all the time. And we tried to course correct from the tone that we, the very gamey tone that we had needed to employ in the PS3 version uh, when we did the PS4 version. And I think it mostly worked, you know, but there's so many other things that happen. The, pro- the process for putting together a narrative game is really, is still like a, in its infancy. I there's so many things, especially coming from film, yeah. that you see, and I'm just I don't want to get into specifics because it's it's so new. Nobody's like, I don't think anybody's doing anything intentionally wrong or the wrong way. But every single time I've been on set for one of our games, I feel like I've learned something where I'm like, oh man, I do, next time we got to do it this way. And whether or not that happens isn't really up to me. Yeah. <laughs> I can make my case for it. Because there are many, many other factors that go into how the shoots for these games go or the writing process goes. But yeah, I mean, after like five or six of them now, like things could definitely be better just industry-wide into how these things get put together. And like, I hope that we're all collectively learning better ways to do it because, I, yeah, I can't get to <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do um Do your games write or, or get shot out of sequence? Or do they do it linear? Until Dawn did get shot out of sequence for a number of, we had a bunch of TV actors, Rami Malek and, mm-hmm. and uh, people who were like shooting shows. So we only could do it on the weekends, basically. So yeah. we would do like these three-day weekend shoots and we did a bunch of them out of order. We were writing out of order too, which was kind of <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for that game. Um, we had written the PS3 version, so we kind of knew it already. But uh, the games we've done since then have all been contained enough that we do them in essentially like a week-long shoot. Mm-hmm. And we do like 400 pages a day and everyone just like blows through it. What? It's like... You what? Get, you get like a table read and you get um, you get the script. I mean, the actors, we're usually finishing those scripts pretty close to... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, m- these haven't been shot out of order, but we don't really have the opportunity to go back, uh, mm-hmm. which is frustrating because I think, uh, and anybody who works on the games, the, these games would, not just me, the writer, would probably tell you this, like you get stuff and then things change in the development and... Mm-hmm. You know, it would be nice to be able to go back and change things and revise and do what you can. We're all nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Do both of your backgrounds, like, with you and acting and sound design, does that make you more hyper-aware of, like, stuff like timing when you're writing or, like, listening to dialogue when smoking your games? I'll give you my short answer. You probably have a much more informed answer as an actor. Uh, maybe. Uh, but, I mean, I look at patter, which is really important to me. But that's important to me as a director, not just a sound designer. It's, you know, I don't think my sound design really informs dialogue writing in games too much. But mm. acting, I think, acting's a challenge It's in video games. It's really... Have you had any experience doing... Uh, or like, Mocap? 
Rumshier. Like no, a, I haven't, but I want to put on a suit so <laughs> badly. So badly. Oh, man. No, I, I have never acted in, in mocap, but I've, um, I grew up doing largely theater. Um, and so there is a very familiar sort of black box experience with mocap that makes me very um, empathetic and but still like deeply impressed by what like good actors can do in a little scuba suit with a bunch of gray blocks <laughs> and like duct taped weapons. Yep. Um, it's it you really see like how much skill is involved in what what a good actor is capable of. And it's it's wonderful. Um, in terms of writing, I, I'm sure that my acting experience has informed my writing. I definitely say all of the dialogue I write out loud, like mumbling like a crazy person at my <laughs> desk. And I also like have noise-canceling headphones, so I'm not actually sure how loud uh, I'm doing it a lot of the time. And when Neil and I sit together, sometimes we both do it next to each other, which gets a little creepy as well. Um, but we never like fully act the scene. We just sort of sit there and mumble at the screen. You should just tape it and then use it to temp all of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but I'm sure I'm sure it does. Like it, you know, even so, like I I audition still occasionally and I still work occasionally and I, you really learn fast. I think how hard certain like, certain sentences are to just get out of your mouth. Like shorter is better. Breaking it up into two if you can versus one long is better. And also trusting your actors. Like, I, you know, when I was coming up in grad school, like, your impulse is to do a parenthetical under the name and, and say, like, annoyed, Sarah, I hate you. Where it's like, you know what? Trust your actors to be smart. Give them room to find it. Maybe they'll find something interesting. And I think that that's really what my experience is now that I'm sort of saying it, coming toward a thesis. It's like, I've worked with so many really good actors that I've learned to trust them and trust their instincts. And, and so I try and give them a good amount of room to play mm -hmm. when I can. I, I, uh, I find that really interesting and also in the experiences that I've had mm -hmm. with these games because we're doing so much and the actors are essentially getting, <clears throat> getting cold readings of the scripts and they're so modular, mm -hmm. we've almost had to rely on parentheticals where we wouldn't otherwise. Sure. And it's frustrating because you want to just let an actor find a scene and find a rhythm and build it, but because it's like that, that bar scene in Hidden Agenda where it's like they're doing tiny, tiny little snippets completely out of, you know, out of, out like, of order, yeah. It's really strange. And like actors are used to that to some degree because... Everything's shot out of order. Movies are shot out of order. You shoot one shot from a scene sometimes out of place. But um, I wish there was a better way to do that for games because it can get very... And we've tried a few different things on set where we'll put up a line for an actor and try to show a little bit of the preceding and following mm -hmm. versions just so they have a sense of context because sometimes it's really difficult to just even know like, volume or like yeah. just very broad things about how a line should be delivered. And I... On the most recent shoots, I've been around to answer questions just because I, I'm yeah. paranoid as a writer. I'm like, oh, they're never going to understand what this line is. <laughs> the line's like, get the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, I need you to say it like, get the door. Yeah, like, be you know. creepy, be creepy. <laughs> it's creepy under every parent. Parenthetical. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, we do. We like try and give them like a paragraph before scenes. I mean, they've all heard yeah. the pitch. They know sort of, you know, what the scene is, but at the same time still just reminding them, like, before this scene, X, Y, and Z happened. Yeah, and um, then the yeah. subtle differences between scenes. And I, I, I don't know how much Last of Us 
branches. Um, some and until dawn, the games that we've done sometimes don't branch that much, but sometimes it's mm-hmm. like down to the tiniest little thing, which you could argue the Kuleshov effect will kind of glue it all together later, but like it's hard being a writer or director and being like, eh, whatever, this version will work for all five, all five lead ins, you know? It just yeah. makes you paranoid. Yeah. 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 It's stressful, guys. <laughs> Writing is stressful. Yeah. I like gray hair. We arms. all like gray hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you think writers should take like an acting class or two? Would that help them, especially with dealing with uh, actors and dialogue or anything that's spoken? I mean, sh- sure. I don't think it can hurt. Absolutely. I. I think if only to have an empathy for what you're putting your actors through mm-hmm. and knowing sort of what it is to come into a scene blind, what it is to to have to take notes on the fly as an actor, that's a really hard thing to be able to do well and fast. Um, and, and understanding, like, some actors do need preparation, some actors are method, and understanding, like, the, the range of actors that are out there so that you can best serve their needs to get the best performance that you can get. I think that's all really useful. Is it uh, necessary? No, but... Uh, it helps. But sure, I think it would be helpful, yeah. So Last of Us Part Two is a sequel to a highly successful game, and Until Dawn... It was more of a surprise hit. Yeah, both people love that game. And so people are looking forward to what happens with Super... Matt? Massive? Right? Yeah. Super massive. Not super giant. I was thinking I was going to say super giant. <laughs> so people are looking forward to what super, gi- super massive makes next. Does fan expectations have any effect on your writing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's a beloved it's a beloved game and those are beloved characters and people have very strong feelings already. And uh, which they make very clear on social media. <laughs> and you're not you. You're aware that you're not making it just for you know yourself, mm-hmm. and telling your story. It's it's. I don't know how to finish that sentence. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's scary. It's scary. Uh, people are mean on Twitter. Have you ever? Uh, and you weren't on the first Last of Us, so you came on. No, the I wasn't. Yeah. Um, even still, have you ever checked out uh, Last of Us fan fiction? To see what people are writing. I haven't. Oh, I should. Interesting exercise. Oh, is it? Yes. I can't. Uh, is it just porn? It's like seventy-five. <laughs> ninety-five percent porn, uh, cool. which actually one of the greatest things I think I've ever had any influence on in my life, which I'm so proud of, is that there is a subgenre of uh, like gay porn for uh, like slash fiction for. Um, until Dawn, uh, called The Climbing Class, based on one of the dumbest jokes I've ever written. What was it? Uh, Share with the class. The uh, the two characters, uh, Chris and um, Rami's character in the Until Dawn, are like climbing through a window, and uh, one of the characters says, I failed climbing class, and he says, you mean Jim? It's really dumb, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a kind of charged scene in some ways. Oh, for as the the slash fiction audience uh, has noted, so they uh, now call that uh, subgenre climbing class. Oh! If you search from climbing class uh, for climbing class, I'm it's sorry. It's a euphemism now. Yes. I'm gonna use it. Yeah. I'm glad you got to say that on this I, it, podcast. It, it's brought me so much delight. <laughs> it's great. Do you ever want to like write for just those like that small group of people? Want to? Yeah. Oh, I do all the time. Do you we, have like a pseudonym and write your own? Oh, I mean, I don't actually write. Uh, like fan fiction, I like, but like there are definitely like officially things, you like, don't like, okay. unofficially. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Have, yeah. What would your handle be? <laughs> That's a good question. Thank you. We did that. Would the it gym, be the rope? The gym teacher. 
Because like the first game we worked on was Master Chalice for Delphine, and oh, yeah. that game was kickstarted. And so Delphine wanted the people who kickstarted it to have a say on how the game was developed. And there was a thing on the forum, because we came on a year after the game had been developed. So we came on, and then apparently there was something on the forum about like, Bee, like guys riding bees as like knights, like like bees as giant horses. Yes. And so like, they were really excited about that. A small group of people were really excited about that. And then we were running the game, and then we knew about that. It was like that's weird. And then we had a moment where we could just throw that in, just put like a statue of like a bee, a guy on a, riding a bee into this one part of the lore, and it's like just keep it there. Like it doesn't it doesn't like hurt anyone. So we yeah. put, it, put that in. Uh huh. Got into the game. Those people freaked out. <laughs> one guy sent us fan art, like a, a print of it. First time it's ever happened. Like, only time it's ever oh, happened. that's awesome. Yo, yeah. that's amazing. So that was, like, a good part of, like... So what you're saying is, if I give them what they want, I get presents. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you exactly. I'm in it, guys. Yeah. yeah. Or you might get sued, so be careful. Possibly. Oh, man. That's the other thing. I haven't actually really read that much fan fiction because it is a tricky area. Because people yeah. write a lot of it because they're like, well, what if all these things happened? And, you, and then, you know, it's like, oh, if you actually... Even in just, like, sponged up those ideas, then Subliminally it's, influences yeah. your writing. Yeah, it can be tricky. If yeah. they make Until Dawn 2. Yeah. And there's a jump class scene. You <laughs> <laughs> mean climbing class. <laughs> oh, the rope. <laughs> you old so-and-so. At the rope. <laughs> when both of you are struggling with a narrative problem, do you have methods or tricks that you use to try to help you get out of it? Or try to solve it? Like, going for a walk or moving to a different room or something? Oh, I have several. Yeah? I don't, going underneath your desk? I go underneath my desk. I Walks are great. Showers are great. If I'm at the office, if I'm at Naughty Dog, I'll usually storm into Neil's office, pout, and collapse into a pile on the floor. And sleep under his desk. <laughs> and whine. Um, that won't work for everyone. <laughs> and grumble. And then he'll be like, well, do you want me to write it? And I'll be like, no, I just want you to hear my feelings. And then I'll storm out. <laughs> Yeah, I'll talk about it with other people. Honestly, like a hot shower, though, is number one for me. Oh, yeah. I would agree. Hot shower. Yeah. Some, some music. Yeah. Morning shower. Yeah. Solved so many problems I didn't know I had. You can take showers in the morning. <laughs> I don't think I've done that in exactly 16 months since my child was oh. born. Wow. <laughs> Usually my showers are at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. I was having a baby of Bluetooth writing. Well, I haven't yeah. slept in uh, 16 months. <laughs> and I did an interactive thing about sleep deprivation and dreams, so that influenced, <laughs> influenced it quite a bit. Um, in terms of uh, uh, things that help me with my process when I'm stuck, one of the nice things about being freelance, I, I used to work in an office in film, and it was great, and I really do miss being able to just go and talk to other people, which mm-hmm. is really, like, it, it is like a cleanser, you know? But because I'm freelance uh, and making tiny, tiny bits of money on different projects, I have lots of different things going on at any given time, so if I'm not like clicking with one thing, I'll just switch switch to the yeah, other thing. Yeah, that's and I'll a big one too. I'll just shuffle through until I find something that fits. Not great when there's like a deadline, although deadlines can kind of be their own like motivator. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's like I will just not be clicking into a particular project that I need to be working on, but I'm like on fire with something that is not important right now. Oh, that's only how it works oh, yeah. though. Yeah, and I have to chase that thing because I will never forgive myself if I don't. If I have a good idea and I've got to execute it, have to execute it. has to happen. Like, I have to indulge it, you know? So, yeah, having a baby. You know, I will say this. Having a baby means that I used to write at night. I used to write from 10 to 3 in the morning. That I used like, to write then in grad school. Nobody bothers yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, it's just totally 
Like just headspace. sleep. Yeah, just, just sleep, which you don't really need, and you can always do in the morning. Fuck anyway. you, sleep. Yeah. We don't need you. <laughs> when you're in grad school or your 20s, you don't need it. Um, <laughs> now that I'm in my 30s and I have a baby, it's literally like, uh, it's better now if she sleeps through the night. But for like a year, I mean, even to this day, get up at 6, baby goes to daycare at 9, then I've got like a ramp-in period, you know, like at least half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour, so 10 a.m. starting to work. Baby gets home at 5. So... If you do the math for, and then I'm exhausted. You gotta eat lunch. I gotta eat lunch, except I don't eat lunch. You gotta take your hot shower. (laughs) Gotta take the hot shower. Uh, I forego those things way more often than I should. It'll just be like two days without a shower or lunch. You smell okay. It's Well, I just took one before coming here and ate lunch. I made sure to do it for you guys. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But you realize, like, you start to realize that, like, just time management is, like, a humongous thing with writing. So now it's, like... I've trained myself like I had never done before to actually be disciplined about like, okay, 11 a.m. to 1, I'm going to be working on this project and I'm going to, and it's like actually kind of helps because now it's like I hit that time period and I have this routine and it primes you and it's just like you're ready and you just jump in. And, you know, when you're doing like garbage passes or whatever, you know, it's easy to just have that time and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, I think there's there's a real win. Like, win, so I have a couple of jobs too right now and it's like if you are very cramped for time there's something freeing and just going I don't have time to to struggle with writer's block right now like I just have to put something on the page Mm -hmm. and it's not going to be the right thing but it's going to be something and I you know in my experience writing is 70% revision anyway so just having something to tether yourself to to then work with is a is a step forward Mm -hmm. yeah huge huge thing that's why having the coverage pass helps Garbage pass. Yeah, yep. <laughs> that's a good phrase. I've never heard garbage pass, but I really that like takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah, because yeah. you're just like, what? It doesn't matter what it is. We just need yeah. something there to look at and mess around with. I call it squishy. squishy. Like if I turn in a draft, I'm not super happy with to someone. I'll be like, I don't know, it's a little squishy, but like you know, you can see the shape is there. Yeah, <laughs> that's good too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. This will be for both of you, but it's coming off of, of an interview that you and Larry for Until Dawn. Said, the article said, like, what attracted you two to Until Dawn was a growing frustration with modern horror audiences. Fans today, they argued, have grown up in an age of genre deconstruction, scream Kevin in the Woods, and as a result, feel smugly superior to the characters they're watching. And then, if Until Dawn brings responsibility back to the player, said Fessenden, you're no longer laughing at the choices the characters make, you're actually making them, and also subverts the subversion by making you responsible for the choices. You can't just laugh at them in that safe place. So do you feel the same way about other genre audiences? And do you think that you can apply that same thinking to other game genres? I mean, that, that was our thesis for why an interactive slasher film, spe- slasher game specifically, mm-hmm. would connect and shake up that specific genre more than other, you know, more than it might be expected. Um, and I, I still think that's true. The slasher genre specifically has gotten to a point like post-Scream where it is no longer... Like, you can't engage with a slasher film the way that you could when you were watching Suspiria. Nobody can do that now because everything is like... this. The smug is the right word for it. You know, it's like people always feel superior to what's happening on screen, which is... Especially with Reddit. Especially with Reddit. Yeah, or, or like, you know, any sort of com- running commentary on art. It's frustrating as an artist to know that you can't be sincere without... I mean, it's frustrating, but it's also important to realize you have to earn it, you know. And that's not to say people don't earn it. Um, in terms of Until Dawn, uh, we were making something that was, like, kind of light and kind of uh, like like the 
on the surface felt like these kind of goofier slasher films that don't really take anything seriously and are just kind of, you know, seeing teenagers get killed. And then the idea was to subvert that by bringing you in that way and making you think you're safe for feeling superior to the characters. And then as soon as you have any agency whatsoever, immediately they become real to you. And they become real, more real and more real. And all those facades of the stereotypes begin to drop away. And by the end of the game, you realize characters that you thought were like the bitch or the jock or whatever. Like they are totally different. And they're now you, you know, in certain ways. And they, you know, um, I don't, like, and so that's a very specific case. I don't know how that would necessarily apply to other genres. There would be things about, I mean, this goes back to interactive narrative and linear narrative, there not being templates for it, you know, uh, like we talked about before, I think you'd have to look at a genre and that type of linear narrative and think like, okay, what's a way that we can subvert this particular genre in interactive and what more could we bring to it by allowing the player to take ownership or the viewer to take ownership or agency? What is that bias? You know, like, what is that, what like that superior thing are we allowed to do now that we couldn't do before? What do you think is the best horror movie or slasher movie you've seen of late in the last, I don't know, five years? I don't have a great answer to that because I, I'm i not a, like... Aficionado? I'm not, like, a yeah. dyed-in-the-wool genre guy. I'm, yeah. I'm, like, a lynch guy, you know? It's, it's sure. so For me, horror is, like, a very broad thing. Sure. There are definitely movies that I think are scary and mm-hmm. horrific, but they're different. I don't know if I can pick... Like our best. I think a lot of the ones in the last couple of years have all done interesting things. Mm-hmm. But they've taken an interesting angle on the genre. And that's the thing uh, that is sort of problematic is that it's hard to just make a broad sweeping horror movie that isn't like trying one new gimmick on the genre yeah. to shake things up. Yeah. So. Yeah, audiences yeah. have gotten incredibly savvy. Um, and part of that, I think, is social media and being able to sort of very quickly compare and contrast and have conversations. But, um, you know, film and the horror genre have been around long enough now that the, that the very traditional rules, um, the audiences know. They, you know, they analyzed it, they predicted it, Scream came about because people were tired of the, of the tropes. And so, yeah, now there is a real uh, exciting challenge, I think, to, to acknowledge those tropes and, and find new angles. But it is, it is tricky. It yeah. is frustrating sometimes. You know, I, the more that I've thought about it um, in just the last minute, uh, I think I haven't seen all of his films, um, mm-hmm. but James Wan's Insidious, when that first came out about mm-hmm. five years ago, um, happened to be at uh, Toronto a Film Festival for Stakeland. And so I went to the premiere, didn't know anything about it, just knew, like, the guy who did Saw has a new horror movie. Okay. Sure. Knew nothing about it going in. And it was like one of the scariest experiences I've had in the theater. And it's not like it's so... It's a pretty straightforward haunted house movie with a couple little twists on it and then a really wild third act, which, like most wild third acts, isn't as scary necessarily. It's just like... Adrenaline. uh, Yeah, it's crazy. But there are certain things in that movie that are so simple and so upsetting that they're that scary. Yeah. You realize it really is ultimately just about getting people to trust you. And this is true of any genre, Mm -hmm. game or film or anything. Getting the audience to trust that you know what you're doing as a director so that they're not feeling superior to what you're seeing and they're not laughing at it. They're just going, oh, shit, this guy's going to show me something. You know, they're they're going to take me to a place. Like the thing in Insidious with the kid dancing to the record is still like, I've never felt that, like, it just was so upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, like I couldn't look away from the screen. Like it was so close to it too, and like third row or something. And yeah, I, I I love those experiences because just being in film and having seen a lot of films, it's hard to get yourself to a place where you just blindly trust a director. It takes a lot for a director to like earn your trust these days. Yeah, I think I think that people are really looking to be surprised, yeah. and it's become such a game to get ahead of the narrative that if a, if a director or a writer can do it well, can like keep you guessing. That's all. I, I mean, that's all I need in a first act anymore. Is like just just show me something I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Show me show me a character trope and subvert it. Like give me something fresh. Um, but I was just thinking about what what my my favorite horror movie in the last five years would probably be, and I was thinking about the Babadook. Oh yeah. And that's, but at this at, like, what tropes is that really subverting? Not I can't yeah. think of any. Well, it's like the possessed child trope in some way. Sure. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, but and it's but, but it's, it's not so subverting. subverting. It's, no, like, it's like so different, you know. Yeah. And yeah, the scariest for me, the scariest thing in that was before I had a kid was the car scene where he was freaking out. Like it just, yeah, it, it transcended what you thought the movie was. Yeah, and that's what made it really great because you were like, I thought I was in a certain type of movie, and oh my god, this is terrifying. What's happening right now? Yeah, the relationship so is unmoored. complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the most satisfying thing to me when you when you expect something a movie, something from a movie, and then it flips all the rules on you, and you're just like in a new place, and you're unmoored, but you trust. The place that you're in, mm-hmm. because it's so well constructed. That makes sense. Has that yeah. happened for games from either of you? Being surprised. Game? Yeah, like that. I was definitely surprised by the giant mass of hands at the end of Inside. Did not see that coming. But I don't think they like you know. I don't think that was like something that they like set up in a way where you go, of course it's a tank filled with a ball of hands. <laughs> you know, I think it was. You we're surprised to see a ball of hands. Spoilers for Inside. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. But it's also been out for a year, guys. Yeah. But also, I'm so sorry. I'll mark it Maybe down. we bleep this part. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any specific examples. Like I know it's happened. I feel like it's happened more with like not big games like Undertale did mm-hmm. that. You know, did you guys play Undertale? No, you but I know. Mm-hmm. We know like a, what it is. It's like an adventure-y kind of game. You get on Steam. It's, it's like old school. But it really like... There's some like gimmicky things that, like that everybody knows about what it does to subvert your expectations, and then there's some like way deeper, weirder things that happen later on. There's simple stuff like Journey just being a multiplayer game. We yeah. didn't expect it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say like I mean not to I'm gonna say it anyway, but like in Last of Us when Sarah that thing that happened at the and now I'm like spoiler scared even though again <laughs> that game's like six four years, years old. old. Yeah. Uh, but when that thing happens to Sarah that time. I, 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 that blindsided me. I was like, he's not gonna, they're not gonna, oh, damn. <laughs> so that, that hooked me, for sure. Okay, so, a process question. Exposition sucks. Yeah. How do both of you handle writing exposition make it not suck for players encountering it? I think exposition, exposition is a bitch. No one likes exposition. Exposition is the really annoying friend at the party who talks too much. Um, but I think that you can spoonful of sugar it in a way by making it about uh, emotional drives. So, like, if I have to have a character, um, you know, say where they're going, maybe they use that as a weapon to somebody. Like, well, I'm leaving for whatever, whatever. So it's, uh, or, you know, if you have to, or if it's a character who doesn't uh, open up very much, like, they can give exposition, but that's like it's really about them opening up. If you can like, if you can burrito it 
in some some emotional. <laughs> burrito with a spoonful of sugar on top. That's the best vocab word. You've ever <laughs> <laughs> I've never used burrito as a verb before. That's great. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, if you can like burrito it in in uh, also elucidating some facet of character or um, using it as some form of elucidation of emotion, then I think it's much easier to to hide. You know, like people who put vegetables and sauces for their kids. <laughs> I don't eat a lot of vegetables, guys. <laughs> I don't know if we said this before on the podcast, but we heard Sean Ryan talk about exposition once, and he said the way he would do it, like on The Shield, was if you get someone to scream the exposition, it works really well, and people don't care anymore. Like, oh, I'll, I'll use that. Yeah? What's that? Parenthetical screaming. Yeah. <laughs> And then he acted it out. I was like, "He's right." <laughs> I don't, that does sound good. We'll try it in T two. You'll just like you'll be playing, and suddenly like a character will just scream some exposition. I'm here because be <laughs> my baby's in that room. <laughs> it's also interesting that I think that people don't realize how little you can get away with exposition. Maybe yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I was reading a Jeremy Saulnier interview after Green Room came out, and he hates exposition. So all his movies, he has no exposition. He and says he has. He, he says he has no exposition. But well, that's that's the funny thing. Exposition is a very there's a, a wide spectrum of what that is. You know, I mean, like literally anything you're learning at any point in a narrative is exposition. Yeah, maybe no written exposition. Sure. You know, but like there's there's a certain degree of like things that the audience needs to be brought in on to move the story forward, and like that that can be really painful, especially in games when it's like you have a mandate to get this across right now and like oh they have to the player has to or the character has to act this way at this point but it doesn't make any sense like it, it'll it'll hurt the player experience because they won't believe that that makes sense you have to like stand bread it, crumb it yeah exactly breadcrumb it just get like get it there um breadcrumbing it is a great term because a lot of times it's like just grain you know fine graining it as much as possible mm-hmm. and putting little seeds in be difficult in the games because you're not sure who's gonna get yeah. what. Mm-hmm. So I gotta put a lot of it around. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and repeat yourself. Spread it everywhere because uh, like players might not be looking at it. Like literally, they're not looking at because they're looking at whatever yeah. something has physics on it. Well, the cubby hole yeah. again, yeah. again. Yeah. Get over the cubby hole. <laughs> they're cubby holing. Yeah. Um, Rapid Eye, the interactive live action thing that I did. I'm at the point now where. It's cut. I'm watching edits of it, and it's to be able to watch it. It's a, a linear cut, so it's like a half an hour. But it's only the specific choices that I've made as an editor, just to show executives and whoever else like how it's fitting together. And I started realizing that people were, and because it's a short experience, it's like 25 minutes, 25 minutes to half an hour. People were lost on certain things because they were missing exposition from other nodes that mm-hmm. they weren't seeing, that people who might see those other nodes might be lost on things that the people that I, you know, I'd cut this version of were getting. And it made me realize that I have absolutely no metric for gauging this the way that I do for linear narrative, where it's, it's like a science at this point to understand like how much the audience is going to get from a certain amount of exposition peppered in here or there. But now it's a matter of, like, at what point do I lose people with this, like, very precarious pressure point of, like, they don't know enough, but they're still interested. And you want to, like, ride that very fine balance constantly because you want people to, 
especially with something like this that's meant to be replayed and rewatched so that you can see different perspectives and get you know different uh, viewpoints on one story it's like a totally new ball game like I have no idea what works and what doesn't and I'm like lost which is fun but it's also like nerve wracking <laughs> like I absolutely like I cannot figure it out uh, at this stage it has to get further and be tested and be looked at by people because yeah you want to like just fine line don't want to lose them but you want them to not know enough to want to have that itch still to like get back in there I mean what you're trying to do it sounds incredibly difficult so tracking that level of information must be just like <laughs> your your brain is melting out of your ears luckily this is short so it's only mm-hmm. melting this far out of my ears just, <laughs> inch, just an inch or two not a lot of brain has gone yet yeah. but it is soupy in there sure um, but yeah no it's it's really it's a new thing I mean I don't know and and in some ways, that like just going back to mosaic, like it's interesting that mosaic isn't very granular. It's it's a big broad thing where there's giant chunks that you see and you can see all of it. So mm-hmm. I, I I first I was a little frustrated that it was a half an hour thing up front. Yeah, realized, me too. Like, yeah, and then I realized like oh my gosh, he did that because he knows you're going to get a half an hour worth of intrigue. Like everybody's going to know all that information. Board it, setting. It mm-hmm. gives you a lot to you know, and it, most games don't even go that far without some branch at this mm. point in any like narrative games because there's usually some amount of like things to, like the mandate's always like something's got to change right away you know within a minute not that that's bad not that that's bad but it does immediately set you on this path of like having to keep two worlds in your head you know right away also but, too like in my limited experience and like what you're trying to do is sounds terrifying and I, I, I bow before you. In my limited experience with narrative gaming, there is the added benefit that you don't get in narrative uh, for, for film or television where the player is already, if the player is engaged in an activity like trying to solve a puzzle or traversing a large space, you can also just like like slide that exposition in because they're already engaged in something else so it just feels like texture yeah. in a way that is awesome. It's the Portal 2 thing where it's just like yeah, you're yeah, walking yeah, around yeah. and you're getting the whole story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Portal 2 is the best game ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. All right, last question. <laughs> what tools in the storytelling toolbox do you feel are overutilized and or underutilized in games? People saying what their feelings are. Uh, I think is a is a saying what their feelings are and what their very um, clear expectation is. It's just like if you can't, if if you if you how often do you talk about? I'm sad. I'm sad, or gosh, that makes me mad. It's like, well, then do something that's mad. Show don't tell. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. when in doubt, show don't tell. In in writing class, it, one writing class I had, which has always stuck with me, and I don't know if this shows up anywhere else. It was described as first level, second level, and third level dialogue. First level dialogue is, I'm sad. Second level dialogue is, I just can't eat this bowl of cornflakes mm-hmm. because I'm sad. Subtext. Mm-hmm. Third level dialogue is something else entirely that the audience has to decipher because it's put in a context that then makes sense. Yeah. So you have like these levels of abstraction. And just as a rule of thumb, I'm try- like I personally am always shooting for that second level space sometimes third and sometimes you have to go first but if yeah. you can just like if you can always ride that second level space you have created something really compelling and interesting because it's still clear it's still like telegram it's it's kind of the show don't tell yeah. it's like show an action or explain an action yeah. that the audience is going to get inherently right like um, saying uh, gosh i just haven't been hungry for a while instead of i'm sad i mean it's saying yeah. the same thing exactly but it's yeah i'm totally it makes the audience work a little bit 
it, yeah. it makes their brain fire, you know. And if you get audiences like going to sleep because words are just coming at them, they're like, okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're not engaged. Um, similarly, the uh, in, in terms of exposition, my biggest pet peeve in the world is, especially in pilots, it happens in pilots, pilot writing this. Pilots rough. are hard. Pilots are rough. But uh, people always say, you're the one who always... Oh, when someone's telling you how you are? Yeah, yeah. for the audience's sake. Yeah, yeah, In a way that no two people would ever You're never late do. for work. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't want to name TV Well, shows, you love so your mother shows. so much, so <laughs> yep. I understand why this is difficult for you. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. It's, it drives me insane. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. It's definitely frustrating. And, like, and then sometimes you're just in a situation where you go, I don't fucking know. I just have to... I, you just have to know it, and I can only do it in this scene, guys. It's or just, just like, going to happen. I'll fix this later. I'm just going to put it in now. It'll remind me because it's so bad. I'll yeah. go fix And then later. it gets shot. Yeah. And then it gets exactly. shot. I mean, it's like you see that stuff, and you, you think, like, gosh, even if they, like, if, if, if the thing was you're the one who always forgets to bring in the trash, even if it's just changed to a tiny degree, like, you're going to bring, bring the trash, trash in? in? You didn't bring the trash in? Again, really? Like, just changing, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. so it's not... The front loaded of like, you always. And right? like this, it feels like AI dialogue. It's just like, oh, here's the line that needs, like, uh, that bugs me. As a dialogue writer, it's very frustrating to see, like, canned dialogue actually in, like, on screen in productions. And it's like, how did that end up happening? And, it, and sometimes it is just placeholder stuff that makes it through. Sometimes I think it's just like, people don't realize that that second level dialogue actually can work because I think there's a, a level of mistrust on people's parts yeah and I think it's I think it's a lot of just writers not having faith in their audiences yeah. to be engaged which I get right now like look I when I'm watching TV half the time I've got my phone in my hand and I'm like scrolling through Instagram so I understand you know this this fear that like well I need to I need to remind them mm. I need to catch them up I need to hold their hand but I think that that just encourages the behavior. That just encourages that, like, they're checking out. It's a chicken or the egg. Either they've already checked out because you weren't challenging them in the first place, or you were challenging them, they got distracted, but now you're making it easy for them to stay away. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just to mention Mosaic again, I think one of the, the coolest things about Mosaic that I felt from just the first half hour and, like, a little bit of one of the other episodes that I watched is that it really feels like, Soderbergh is just letting the audience catch up on their own, and that's kind of the point mm -hmm. of it. It's so that you you just are presented with a scene at the beginning, and you have absolutely no context or who these people are or what's happening or what they're talking about, and then they start talking about the scene in a way where you're like, I still don't understand. Like, now another person's weighing in, and I still don't know what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. And it just trusts that you're going to catch up, mm -hmm. which is great. Yeah. It feels so great as a, a, a viewer. And also the new Twin Peaks, which I feel like is like the best interactive narrative I've seen lately because it's basically an interactive narrative. It does. It just drops you in the middle of like a cycle, and then you get to the end and you're like, "Oh my god, I have to watch this again because there's a whole like subset of layers to this that I would never have gotten the first time mm -hmm. because it was meant to be seen in a fragmented way, which is amazing. Like, doesn't care whether or not you're with them the first time, which is great, but really difficult to sell. <laughs> <laughs> Unless um, you're David Lynch. Unless you're David Lynch. You're allowed to do that. What if yeah. he made video games, though? Oh, damn. We'll leave it on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Woodcutters from Fiery Ships. Check it out. He never finished it. 90s, 90s CD-ROM game. Was it called? What? Woodcutters from Fiery Ships. I don't know more about it other than a couple articles that were written, but I know it never got finished. It's a great title. Yeah. Someone has it. That's get leaked on the internet. Oh, man. 
If you listen to this, leak it on the internet, please. (laughs) Um, So where can people find you both on the internet? Uh, I'm at Graham Resnick on uh, Twitter with a Z. Uh, I'm at Grosstastic, G-R-O-S-S-T-A-S-T-I-C on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at ScriptLockCast. And that is it for today and for the end of the year. Because this podcast is done for this year, I think. Unless we put an extra episode in. Which well, unless this comes out in January. Yeah, maybe it will. But thank you two for coming on. Thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs>